Welcome to this edition of the Disciples Men podcast with your hosts, Greg Alexander and Alex Ruth. Thank you for joining us as we explore the many challenges of being man of faith in these challenging times. Disciples Men is a ministry of Disciples Home Missions of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in the U.S. and Canada. Let's listen in today's conversation. Welcome to the Disciples Men podcast. I'm Alex Ruth, your Associate Director of Disciples Men, and we have with us Greg Alexander, who's our Director of Disciples Men and a special guest today, which we'll get to introducing in just a moment. Greg, how are you today? I'm good, Alex. Uh, Happy New Year to you. And to you as well. I am excited about our conversation today. Greg and I are committed in the um, early part of 2024 to interviewing some of the other leaders at Disciples Home Missions, of which Disciples Men is a part. And so today we have with us the coordinator for ministry with youth and young adults, another nice long title, Alexis Tardy. Alexis, glad to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, Alexis, why don't we get started by just telling us a little bit about who you are, help us get to know you, uh, and we'll take the conversation from there. Perfect. Sounds good. Thank you and Greg again for having me today. So I guess I'll start at the beginning. I grew up, I was born and grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I have two older sisters and most of my dad's side also lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I moved to Indianapolis, Indiana around 10 years old and have been in and out ever since, I guess you could say. I did my undergrad at an HBCU at Talladega College in Talladega, Alabama. So I was there for maybe two, two and a half years. And I transferred to Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, which is a very long name, but otherwise known as IUPUI in Indianapolis. Or Uwe Pooey. Uwe Pooey, also known as Uwe Pooey, unfortunately. (laughs) And I studied civic leadership with a concentration in legal studies. My plan was to go to law school. God had other plans. And so after, after that, I ended up going to Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri to get my Master of Divinity. And I'm currently in a doctorate program at Memphis Theological Seminary at this current time. And in and out of, you know, while I was in these different places for school, I did a lot of, well, not a lot, I would say around the time of Eden Seminary, I did youth ministry work. And I also did some community or community organizing work as well in St. Louis and Ferguson. So the combination of ministry and social justice definitely came together for me when I was in St. Louis. And I think that has been a part of my ministry ever since, which kind of led to my role now of doing youth and young adult work, but very much with a justice and womanist lens. That's really helpful to me. We've, because of how our meeting schedules are now, we don't get a lot of face-to-face time. DHM wise out, you know, we do a lot of our Zoom meetings and and I've never had a chance to hear your story. And so that's wonderful. We have been certainly impressed with what you brought to DHM, without a doubt. And it's, it's great to hear how you got there to be a part of this uh, ministry we're all a part of. So Thank you. Can, you, can you share a little bit about some of your responsibilities in your ministry with DHM? Sure. So I would say my main responsibility uh, in my role is to resource the wider church particularly as it relates to youth and young adult work. I will also say having an intentionality around intergenerational ministry as well, because as we all know, youth and young adults come from families, so they're not just kind of standalone people. We, we come from families as well, and so it's important to have that intergenerational ministry as well. 
So I'm very, well, I'm very intentional about being connected with different regions. So really the first, probably the first thing I did in my role was connect with different regions, regional leaders, regional youth and young adult leaders, if they had them, if not camps, outdoor ministries, like any way that I could kind of get to the youth and young adults in the region. And then if if that structure wasn't there, I was often kind of referred to like local congregations. Like we don't have that structure here regionally, but this congregation is doing really great work around youth and young adult work. So that's what I've kind of done at the first part of my role. Also traveling to be in these places is also important for relationship building. And I think relationship building is a big part of this role as well. And then we also have, you know, the YAC and the GYC and also thinking about and also maybe reassessing a little bit, like how can young adults be connected to the church? Oftentimes, at least what I've heard is you have youth ministry, but then you get to young adults or college and then it just kind of falls off (laughs) and and congregations are like, we're not quite sure how to keep folks involved. So what are the ways to keep those connections um, as well? And I think part of that is talking about the issues that matter to young adults in particular, um, which is usually current events and things that are going on in the world. And I think a lot of young adults want to know what is the church doing about this? So as I'm thinking about resourcing the church, I'm also thinking about where the conversations we need to be having to keep youth and young adults connected. And I think from one of our staff meetings we were talking and one of the challenges and I think I experienced this when I was in congregational ministry is one of the challenges with young adults is it's such a broad spectrum of experiences between married not married kids not kids where are we at in vocation are we continuing to go to school or are we going to trade school or are we going into the workforce it's a it's a time of pretty massive changes in our lives as people. And so it it you can't have a one size fits all ministry for young adults. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that is part of the assessment and reassessment in my role is to your point, it's not one size fits all. And it's such a time of transition that you you have a lot in common as young adults, and I fall in that category, but then there are friends who are in totally different life stages that I'm not in at the same time, right? So they may be connected to groups that don't that are not that relevant to me and vice versa, or have time, I might have time that they may not have time for because we're just in different life stages. So I think the way that the church in particular thinks about young adults could, could use some reassessments because I think the way that we've done ministry has been with a one-size-fits-all kind of lens. And I think thinking about it more in terms of vocation or in terms of interest, I think it's important to have a lot of entry points. (laughs) I think that's true in general, but definitely for young adults and for youth, what are the different entry points that we can have that's not limited to age? Because I think we miss out on a lot when we just kind of limited to age groups. Can you give us a couple for instances, if you were, if if you were in charge and could wave the wand? (laughs) What, what would be a couple of things that you think churches ought to consider? I would be interested, I guess in, in my role, it might be easier to say than just like congregationally, but to have almost time-limited interest groups or workshops around particular topics that could be led by young adults and maybe young, young adult-based, but still also leave room for it to be intergenerational as well, whether that comes through the speakers, whether that comes through the participants, 
I think it would be a lot more interesting if we had an interest group around climate justice and creation care led by young adults or an interest topic around police brutality and violence led by young adults under the framework of the church and still open to being intergenerational. So maybe that is a six month cohort or maybe that is a two day workshop, but it's more about interest. It's more about what, what kind of work are we called to do as the church or as Christ followers around this particular issue? And then how are we going to act on it? I, to me, that's more interesting than just throwing young adults in the room. <laughs> like, I think that is a more interesting way to bring folks together. And I think it is a more fruitful way of, if it's intergenerational, of having intergenerational wisdom with a historic perspective around climate justice or police brutality, and then saying, okay, but what does our future look like and how do we all work together to get there? So if I could wave a magic wand, I would have those almost as like retreats or almost as like, you know, time limited workshops or groups where we would come together and work on those particular issues. And then you could go back to your congregation. You could go back to your region and start to do that work as well because now you have a template. So that's something I, I think would be kind of interesting. I love that idea of uh, being time limited and it, it does what you talked about, gives those access points. It gives a time. I, I'm pretty tight with my time. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to commit to something that if it's going to last potentially, you know, months or years, it, unless it's something that I'm very, very committed to. If it's something that I'm interested in, might want to learn more about, but not sure I want to make that commitment. If I can do something for six, eight weeks, I can commit that kind of time. You know, this exactly. winter, I can do something. And, and, that may turn into a longer term passion ministry activity, but, but to get my feet wet, give me an out at the end. I, <laughs> I can, I can make it a little bit, a little bit easier that way. Right. And I think if, if, if the model is to equip people, that is just a six to eight weeks, two day, you know, and then if you want to go deeper then how do you use these tools in your own context? That's where you really want to go deeper, right? Because if we're bringing people from all different types of contexts, that's not one size fit all either. But if we kind of equip folks to do that, it's like, okay, if you want to go deeper after the six, eight weeks, you bring this back and you go deeper. But if we're talking about, you know, an age period that's very transitional, as you, especially this age, you're like, yeah, give me some time limited. Give me something about six. I like long cohorts, but I also love lectures. I also like people don't always learn that way, right? So it's like, what are these other ways that we can kind of bring people together? And it's like, this is something you can integrate in your daily life, right? And then take it back to your own context. I could see one obstacle to that is that we still have people who only understand church as it appears on Sunday morning or in their building. And you're suggesting something that doesn't fit that I mean, it's it's something that takes place independent of of traditional understanding of church. How how does that how how would you ease the mind of a congregation who wanted to open the door to this kind of experience? How how would they begin to understand that they're still it's still ministry it's still part of their ministry, etc. I, I hope you hear what I'm asking. Oh, yes, I definitely hear what you're, <laughs> what you're asking. It's something I have experienced personally. 
And I think that's such a great point because simultaneously, if we're having these interest groups, I think what you're bringing up is important too, because there also needs to be some type of workshop or training with the congregation as well. I think the way that I think about it or approach it when I'm having discussions with folks who think, I would say think to be kind of like, think of the church as just a, only a building. My example, my community organizing template, if you will, is Jesus. And Jesus was always moving. Now I understand it's a different time. It was ancient. That's not 2024, but still like Jesus was always, I just had this conversation with somebody literally yesterday. Jesus was moving from city to city, right? Jesus was ministering from city to city. And then when a certain place didn't listen, he shook the dust from his feet and then went to the next one, right? So I think the way that we limit ministry to the church is like Jesus limiting his ministry to the synagogue. When he stood up in the synagogue, that was a proclamation of his ministry, but he didn't walk from the synagogue to the cross, right? Like he had a whole ministry in between. And that's what I'm after. Like, that's what I seek to model is Jesus went around healing folks. He went around feeding people. He, you know, he made sure that people had what they need. And that is ultimately what got him killed at the hands of empire. And so I think when we limit that to the church, we're limiting the good news to within the four walls. And I think that takes some deeper theological, like equipping and learning of Bible, the scripture and Jesus's ministry, because we already, as Christians and as a church, like we already have the resource (laughs) to understand that, right? And we can use other resources as well, but just as a spiritual resource, I think having a congregation just doing another reading of Jesus's ministry or another reading of the Bible will help us understand ministry differently and to me at its core i know sometimes when i talk to folks it's like there's church and ministry and then there's social justice (laughs) and for some reason those two things are like separate when justice to me is really at the heart of the gospel so Mm -hmm. i think if we read the bible if we read jesus in jesus's context not just as a spiritual figure right As, as a brown palestinian oppressed jew in his own context what does that mean for us But I think that does take some training and equipping of the church and clergy and leaders and pastors. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of what I think about. Yeah, it does. And I think that's the challenge. You know, I serve a tiny little rural church that's old. Well, it's a small town church, not rural. And and these are conversations that we have from time to time. There's, uh, to their credit, they're not panic conversations. They're not, oh, we're going to die if we don't get young Mm -hmm. families in. It really is. What does it take for us to be able to touch the lives of the people beyond the walls of the church? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what 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 equipment do we have, you know, both spiritually and, and physically, et cetera, do we have that can make a difference in their lives? And one of the, I think even for me, one of the great challenges is, is we have no place in which we connect with mm-hmm. you know, youth and young adults. And my whole congregation, all their grandchildren live out of the town. I mean, they all live away. Mm-hmm. And and so just on a normal run-of-the-mill week, we have almost no contact mm-hmm. with people who who are youth we'd classify as youth or young adults. And and I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know how we it feels intrusive if we try to force our way into their places. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I would need some instruction for sure on how how that would be done effectively. But I also recognize our church is not a place that would draw people. 
I mean, we would be, we would misrepresent ourselves if that would be the target. But what we would be open to is supporting ministries that were doing that as long as there was a way that fed the spiritual vitality back to us. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know, again, I don't know where that exists. Maybe you can guide me there. But, uh, I, you know, again, it's, for I, for my people, it's not we're, it's not a one-size-fits-all who we are church. So they've really moved beyond that in many ways. As much as they would prefer it, they've moved beyond it. But But still, it's hard for us to find where those new roads are that take us to new places. Mm-hmm. And and I, I suspect that's true for a lot of pastors, a lot of congregations. And it's a it's a big challenge that you have that we all have. I think that's very true. And I, and I, I don't have the experience in that particular context, but I think as you said, supporting other ministries and partnerships cannot be overstated. I think that's such an important part of the ministry. But I will be honest and say I think the connection between organizing and ministry and kind of going outside of the four walls and understanding that not just as like a one-off sermon or a one-off Bible study, but structurally, I have not found it except for outside of the church or or if right now it's, I, I have found it in an org that someone that I'm connected to created and we are leading together, but it's not really connected to a church. Like that's not actually something that I have found yet. And I think as I was talking to someone the other day, I think that's because it's not, we still don't have that structurally yet, right? There's like one here and one here. And even if I have conversations with a pastor or with a church or I'll come preach or I'll come do a series, or I'll, I'll have a pastor be like, okay, I see what you're saying. Like, in order for us to be Christian, we also have to do justice. It still has to structurally be infused because otherwise it's so easy for us to just kind of lean into our own individual theologies and ideologies. And we have a society that reinforces that, that if we don't change it structurally, that's still where we where we land. But I say all that to say sometimes in context, if we don't have young people or if we don't have people that we are looking looking to reach, I think partnership is such a big part of that. And sometimes it's also helpful if a third party kind of mediates that between churches or between a church and another organization, because I also don't think it's fair to put everything on the church, right? Like sometimes we need other resources to kind of help us navigate that. Well, the church doesn't have to do everything. There are some really great organizations out there doing really good work, and and it doesn't make much sense to me to, to try to recreate a similar thing within the, the church context when it's already there. Right. How can I go be a part of it? How can I support it? And it becomes a ministry by the fact of we're there, right? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't have to. It's not a ministry because the church started it. It's not a ministry because somebody prays at the beginning and end. It's it's a ministry because Christians are involved and we're bringing our faith to bear in what we're doing in the world. Um, yeah. and, and we've we've missed that, I think, uh, some uh, because of because of those structures, right? The, the, the structures have been molded to do something. And if we want them to do something else, you got to change the structure. 
Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I think your point about like ministry of presence is so real. And I think sometimes folks can be like, I don't know how to do justice. I don't know how to do this. Right. But I think ministry of presence is so real and so impactful and so powerful to just be like, I'm here with you. I'm standing here with you. It's so important. And I also think the challenge is, and I catch myself too, to not say like ministry is here and out here is something else. As I was saying to a friend the other day, like there are ways that I think social movements today and things and, and folks in movements and protests who are moving in solidarity are the church as well. Like that's ministry as and I think they are calling us to ministry. Yes. So I think the connection of churches, and some of this is also my my doctoral project of connecting churches to social movements that are already happening because we're looking for a move of God and God is already moving. It's not in our four walls. And so we maybe we're missing it, but I think sometimes we're looking for hope or we're looking for movement. We're looking for spaces. And yes, movement, protests, standing up against oppression, that's all risk, but it's also love. And I've often said that's the closest to Jesus I have ever felt was marching on the streets in Ferguson still to this day when it was not in the church. And so I think knowing, being able to discern the times, as that scripture says, like being able to discern the move of God is so important that we might be trying to put together a program or something like that. And God is already like, it's right here. If you just kind of catch the wave, you know, but if we're not looking, if we're not paying attention, if we see that as just something else out there, Mm -hmm. then I think we miss God when we do that. So I think those binaries are not helpful, but really being able to plug into the move of God that's already happening because there is, there's human action. Uh, I think Willie James Jennings talks about like human action, but still divine grace. So as you said, it's not all on us. Like where is God also moving so that we're not trying to like build a car and it's like, it's right here. <laughs> like Just get in the car and just kind of connect yourself to the move of God that's already happening. Yeah. I, we had an experience in Lexington when I was regional minister of Kentucky. We reached out, uh, we reached because of our, our connection with Green Chalice, we reached out to a number of community-based organizations in Lexington. And we brought their executive directors together in a luncheon with us to talk about how how our region and essentially the number of churches in the greater Lexington area could be greater partners with those ministries. And, and, and they essentially said, thanks, but no thanks. We don't want the church's involvement. Mm. And those of us who are in that conversation weren't ready for that. And so I did some follow-up work individually with some of the folks. And essentially, they were responding to the brand of Christianity that we see that all of us, all three of us, would have great negativity towards. And and we're lumping all of us in that same category and didn't want to have to contend with us being holier than now or this is what, you know, uh, all that stuff. And I found that that was just really an eye-opening moment for me, and it made me realize at that time that one of the one of the great holes in my own journey and my own education was I never went through any kind of community organization training, community organizer training. I would lobby hard today that that should be required for every pastor for Masters of Divinity mm-hmm. for ordination, mm-hmm. uh, because what happens is all we do is navel gazing. 
We look at the world and say, we want the world to come and save us. We need your money. We need your butts and our pews, et cetera. And, and, and what a community organization does automatically is turn the tape, turn it on to the other side. How can I serve you? What can I bring to your cause that is of value to you? How can we do it better, more efficiently, more effectively, et cetera? And I, I until we, until the church learns it's not about us, we're in trouble. And I am so grateful, as I've w- watched now, the influx like you and a whole bunch of other new leaders who really are coming out of community organization foundation uh, background are really telling us a different narrative that I think may save us in the end, uh, uh, may save us as a movement in the end. And, uh, and I'm so grateful for that. But I do recognize it was one of those places that I had longed to know more and never had a chance to, to, to know. And I know that would have made me a much better pastor and leader, et cetera, had I ever had that, had that training. So mm-hmm. agree, disagree? Yeah, no, I think you just preached the whole word. I, I completely agree. I, I think that folks in organizing movement spaces have a, a rightful suspicion of, of Christianity and, and ministry and and in all the ways that the church does not speak of, even against white Christian nationalism right now or Zionism right now, or I mean, pick an issue, right? Where in general, right? Like I'm not just, I'm not saying disciples of Christ, but just in general, like the church does not speak on these issues. I think in, in, in the ways that in the past and, and even now, like clergy or being a person of the cloth, like you, you are able to monopolize any public space you're in, right? Because you show up in a stole and a robe and you take the mic and all the people that's been doing the work this whole time. And then you just show up on the scene you're able to, right? So there's a rightful suspicion of just like, we don't want you here. We don't want you in this space. Not, not you, Greg, as I'm saying in general, because I've experienced the same type of suspicion too of like, which is why I don't really, I usually don't leave with that, right? I don't say I'm a minister <laughs> if I'm in a community organizing space. I was helping to lead a, a, a justice org locally and I just got out of seminary. So I was clear about how I show up as a minister. And there were folks who were suspicious of me and gave me a side eye. And I think that's fair. <laughs> right. I think I was like, that's fine. But I don't I, I, I don't usually lead with that because of that kind of right. And that's also not the reason I'm here. I'm not here to monopolize the space. I'm not here to take the mic. I'm not here to be holier than now. But I think I think the ways, as you said, that that the church does navel gazing and, and, and the pastors do, like we're not seeing beyond ourselves. We're leaning into that individualism today where we now more than ever do social media and videos and the news. We can see what's happening around us or we're just experiencing it ourselves. And then to be in a church or in a context that you don't even touch on it, <laughs> like we're not even going to talk about what we're, we're seeing from week to week. We're not even going to address the pain and suffering that maybe your own congregants are feeling. We're not going to talk about what we're seeing going on in the world. And so, of course, if we're not talking about it, we're definitely not doing anything (laughs) about it, right? And I think to follow or, or to claim to follow a man like Jesus 
and still somehow rectify not focusing on healing, not focusing on serving, not focusing on being in community with people, not focusing on just yourself. It is hard for me to figure out how those two things go together. And I think I'll speak from my own experience. So for myself and for folks like me, it really has you hanging on by a thread, to be honest, (laughs) right? Because it's like, I don't understand how I can be a part of of a church or a part of churches and then still experience this in the day to day, right? Or still see what we're all seeing on the news. And there's there seems to be no connection, which which inadvertently says to people, God has nothing to say about this. Like God has nothing to say about the pain and suffering. God has God wants nothing to do with the pain and the suffering that you're going. I don't have any type of good news for you. I don't have any type of word for you except for do good and you'll go to heaven or do this and you'll get a new car or do this and you'll get a new house. But other than that, like, I don't have anything. I don't have a word for you. God has nothing to say about you. And ultimately, I just don't believe that. I believe God has something to say about pain and suffering and bombing and war and poverty and sickness. I think God has something to say about it. And I think God expects us to partner with God in that work as well. And so I think, as you said, Greg, about how community organizing helps you to go from I to us, like I to how are we serving one another. But my frustration is how do we not already like know that, (laughs) you know, as as a church and as, as reading the Bible, like how do we already not know to wash each other's feet? Like how do we already not know to serve one another? And to me, that is like a a loss of our foundations. You know, that's a loss of who I, you would think we understand ourselves to be. So a part of me is like, we have the resources we need. And then the other part of me is like, we have to look outside of where we are because we have the resources, but we're not doing it. So we do need to be connected to community organizations and things like that. So I remember James Cone wrote like nonprofit orgs, popped up more and more because the churches stopped doing what they were supposed to be doing. Like they stopped, you know, serving, they they stopped feeding people. They stopped. So you had to start having all these other words, but those things churches used to do, you know, literacy, feeding people, helping people. Like, so I guess I say all that to say, I completely agree. And I think that because we are in a place of needing to go back to our roots, I think, as Christians, I think that community organizing, I think movement spaces can teach us what it means to love one another, can teach us what it means to love the stranger, can teach us what it means to be in solidarity with one another, and can teach us what it means to heal or some of the most healing spaces I've ever been in. And I think the church can learn a lot from that. And I don't think it's too late. Yeah, I I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. It's not too late. It's what we've what we were called to do. It's what we are called to do. One of the things that I that I am thinking as as we're talking is churches, and I need to be let me be perfectly clear, this is a white church experience that I speak from. For a while in our history, pretty much allowed folks to compartmentalize, to silo themselves you know, and do ministry here. And I'm part of this small group, right? I'm part, and those are all important, but it it brought us into really small silos and really individualized concept of what it means to be in ministry or, or part of a faith tradition. And one thing that I think we, again, we should already know, but <laughs> one thing that we can learn well from community, organi- community organizing is the community part, 
It's those relationships. Those are, that's the, the building block on which everything happened through Jesus ministry. And mm-hmm. I believe happens for us in the church or in, in your work with youth and young adults, in our work with disciples men. It's building those relational networks mm-hmm. uh, that then allow me to know that there's a something happening across the state. Because I was I was living in southwest Missouri during Ferguson, and that it had an impact on us, but it had a greater impact on me because I knew people who were there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I knew pastors who were mm-hmm. on the streets. I knew pastors who were afraid for their lives. So those relationships made it more real and impacted the way I talked about it in my little rural church with a bunch of white folk to to begin to have a conversation about the fact that racism is alive and frankly way too well in our country and in our world today. And still still is something that we must work to address. Absolutely. I think I think relations your point about relationships is so important. I think I think about the probably most close knit church I've been a part of that was in St. Louis. And it was it was very different for me. And I was like, you all are very close. You all hang out after church. You don't walk right out the door. That's interesting. <laughs> and I remember a girl telling me, she was like, that's because this congregation is intentional about practicing vulnerability. And I think practicing vulnerability and also cultivating risk and courage is so important. And I think that had, I think what is helpful doesn't only have to come from the pastor, but I think it's helpful to have a pastoral mandate to risk, <laughs> to build courage, to practice vulnerability, to learn, as you said, what it means to be in community with one another. But I think I think the implication of just wanting to be in the four walls, as Greg was saying, is that you don't, there's no risk, <laughs> unless it comes to your front door, right? Unless something happens to you or your congregant or your street or your neighborhood, you might do something, right? Because then you're kind of shaken and woken up. But there's too much incentive to be comfortable. And I think, I don't know, I think recently I've started to think about how that goes both ways. It flows from the, the congregations to the pastor and from the pastor to the congregation because you don't, you can cultivate a congregation's appetite to just want to talk about being comfortable or individualism, right? And then the congregation can incentivize that. So then that's all you talk about or you preach about. So there's nobody's going outside anywhere. <laughs> the pastor, the, you know, there's no... But there's no incentive, there's no challenge to do that either, right? So there has to be some type of challenge to take a risk, to be vulnerable, to go outside somewhere else or talk to someone else that you wouldn't usually talk to and be ready for struggle. Because I think what Greg talked about, about organizations kind of being like, I want nothing to do with you, right? And all of us being like, that's fair. (laughs) I think that's part of struggling through things with people Mm -hmm. too, right? Because it's also like, okay, People were suspicious of me too, probably in the order that I was in. But I'm like, but I know what I'm committed to, right? Or And there are other bigger things that you all will have to struggle to together. And that's how you build trust. That's another thing you can learn being a community org too. Is like, okay, how do we disagree, but stay focused on whatever the mission is, making sure children get fed or making sure we change, you know, the structure of policing or whatever. So then you, it's not that those things are not important, but in light of this, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and struggle through because we have these structural issues that we need to change. But you don't know that until you take a risk. You don't know that until you kind of risk being vulnerable in those spaces. And that seems small, but then 
if you take that and then you go out in the streets and you're facing tanks, but I know Greg, me and Greg struggled <laughs> through a lot, you know, in, in these private spaces as a group, then that's different, right? That's a different mm-hmm. type of agape. That's a different type of solidarity. That's a different type of will that has been cultivated inside you so that you can learn to take risk. And then if you put on top of that, you know, we follow Jesus, you know, <laughs> you know, that's a different type of risk that's cultivated. But I think if we lean too much, or, or I think the church has leaned too much, I should say, into American ideals, that I'm not so sure we're getting the gospel. We're getting more of American ideal ideals with scripture laid on top of it when we're facing life and death. That's the that's what's so irresponsible to me, if I'm being honest, is that we're dealing with life or death issues and this is what we're talking about. I, well, it's just so true. I just so appreciate you both of you fleshing that out. One of the things I think has really hindered us is all of us, you know, I began ministry in, in the late seventies. And all of us who began ministry at that time moved into a church in decline. And what's never been owned is that, at least I don't think it's been owned across the board, is that we, we inherit a church that's always been in survival mode. Mm-hmm. And when you're in survival mode, you, 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 know, you exchange cooperation for competition because mm-hmm. now we see everything as limited and I want my fair share. And that's where the self-interest arises is you know, self-preservation. And We've never, we number one, I don't think we've ever really acknowledged it as, you know, as a church, as a denomination, really. I think I don't think the mainline churches have ever acknowledged that, historic mainline churches. And and so everything that we try to do bumps square into that, you know, that what are you going to do for me first mentality? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why evangelism for us is help us, help save us. No, it's not. It's not sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways that makes that blesses other people's lives. It's mm. about how can we get you in to bless us, mm. and that's a survival mentality. That's you know that's what we do. We're always looking for a way to get our edge, to get our fair share, whatever it is. And and how how we overcome that cannot be done within the context of the church. Mm. We, we've all we all have drunk that Kool Aid, and you know and. Alex, me, you, to some degree, Alex or Alexis, we've all, we've all been there because of have the church, the church in which we were fostered, our faith was fostered. That's why, for me, the answer is going to come from without. First of all, the first without is Jesus Himself, which is yeah. what Alex and I have been trying to do with our work through with the Jesus way. And and then the second is is that how do we find what Jesus taught and manifested in places that are not typical church, which in many respects are nonprofit organizations, these uh, community organizations that we've been talking about, because that's they don't start with the Kool Aid, same drink of Kool Aid <laughs> we did, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know I I hope and pray that we still have enough desire within us as the Church of Jesus Christ. To really want to follow Jesus, not the imposters that we've created that serve self mm-hmm. and help yeah. us in our survivability, but how do we how do we how do we find, for lack of a better word, that authentic Jesus, that true you know the true gospel Jesus that that really at heart was a justice advocate in every yeah. dimension of his life, and so yeah. I'm, I'm going to get off my soapbox, but that's a. Mm-hmm. Please don't get off your soapbox. Like when you were talking, my first thought was repentance. And I think exactly. uh, any church is like, where can we start? I think that's a good start is, is talking about the repentance yeah. that we need to do because of 
you know, the, the, the Kool-Aid. And, and I think, I also think about, there's a woman named M. Sean Copeland, and she writes one of my favorite books. But she talks about how solidarity begins with anamnesis. And it, it starts with remembering the dead. Like mm. solidarity begins with remembering the dead, the exploited, the despised, those throughout history that have been maimed, destroyed, murdered, killed, thrown away. And that we, basically, we owe what we do starting there, right? And there are those in the present who are experiencing the same thing, but our solidarity begins with remembering the dead, the exploited dead of the past and the discomfort that comes with that. And the end of her book, her point is how communion helps us do that, right? Like that's what brings mm. us both back to Jesus, but the dead and exploited of the past. And that's, we owe everything we have to them. <laughs> you know, those who ha- who were oppressed, those who were underfoot, those who were in the middle passage, those who were, who have been killed, like we owe everything that we have starting there. And I think there are ways I'm not saying this is the thing, but I think there are ways we can bring that into our services with our call to worship, with our liturgy, with a call for repentance, with a true commitment, commitment, as June Jordan says, my body and my language to to be in solidarity. I wasn't there then, but I'm here now. Like, how do I make that commitment today? How do I make a commitment to learn? Because we're all swimming in the same waters, right? So even nonprofit orgs and community orgs are not perfect either. And I've definitely experienced that because we're all swimming in the same kind of capitalist, sexist, all of that racist waters. (laughs) And so none of us are perfect. We all have the contradictions that we have to work through. But I have, and I pray that I keep a commitment to struggle. I want to commit to struggle. And just like salvation is not a one-time thing, neither is that commitment right it's it's a commitment to salvation it's a commitment to struggle and it sucks sometimes (laughs) but it's also very very rewarding like the most Mm -hmm. rewarding I've ever experienced that didn't happen in the four walls of a church and that's also what I want people to experience not just the risk and the sacrifice but I'm like there's so much joy (laughs) and there's so much love there's so much peace there's so much that you experience in movement spaces and doing and what Jesus has called us to do. And I think that's just as important to say, it's not what you lose, but it's what you gain. The relationships that I've gained being in these spaces are invaluable. They're life-changing. So when we're in solidarity and doing that work together and doing what Jesus has called us to do, whether people next to me call themselves Christian or not, it's holy work. (laughs) So inviting people to do holy work that we've been called to, I think that's also an exciting invitation for people to commit to. And I don't know if people do altar calls anymore. That's what I grew up with. But I think that's a great altar call, right? Is a commitment to do that work as well and to join the work that Jesus has already called us to. Mm, that's, yeah. Once again, resonate with all that you're saying. And now I've got one more book that you need to give me a title for. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a, a, a book list that should be just titled Alexis's List. Um, <laughs> keeps growing. Um, and with your, you doing your doctoral work, I'm sure that your list is just I'll probably longer have some than more mine. For you. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I want to kind of change topics slightly um, because Greg and I have talked a, a bit about this in the past. And I, I'd love to get your perspective uh, on this. What are your, spring this on you, what are your thoughts um, about um, the future of social media and internet, you know, internet connectivity 
um, as part of um, ministries in general. Uh, one thing that we've noticed or we experience as middle-aged and older men is that I really appreciate being able to be in the same space with other people. That is not always the best use of our time or finances or, frankly, our resources because, you know, we burn carbon every time we travel to be in, in, in person. What what does that look like from a young adult perspective? What are some keys that we might be able to take away for what ministry might look like in 2025 and beyond? Wow, that's such a great question. I think there are so many benefits to, you know, social media, being online, internet connectivity, all of us being able to talk right now and not being in the same place, right? Like the the benefits of of having those connections. And I think social media, you know, has that instant way of connecting you with people you don't know from around the world, around the country, around, you know, different states. And I think that's a benefit. And I think that has been a tool for, you know, as we've been talking about social movements, it's been a tool for social movements as well. And it's obviously been a tool for the church. And I think, you know, especially with the pandemic and the ways that church had to pivot with streaming online and connecting with people online. I've heard it's hard for a lot of congregations, but I've also heard a lot of congregations say like, we've gained a lot of members. Like that was actually a time of growth for our congregation. So I think that social media is definitely a plus. I think because I'm sort of mid to upper on the young adult scale, I would say people even younger than me are experiencing the internet and social media that I'm not even experiencing it, right? So the ways that AI and chat GPT that I'm semi-familiar with, but not super. But those younger than me, I have a, a, a colleague now who's younger than me and knows that inside and out, right? Like who have those type of connections. And I think just like anything, there are pros and cons to that. And I think, but I think either way, we have to reckon with it as a church. We have to reckon with it with those who, especially those who are working with youth and young adults with both the pros and the cons. And I don't think we can ignore it. I think that we probably should learn a little bit more about it, including myself that we can figure out how we can be a tool. I think where it might get harmful is if it becomes like the, maybe the only way of connection or just kind of the sole thing. I think of these things as tools, not like the point. It's like, how can I use social media too? <laughs> how do I use this too? Yeah. I think sometimes it just becomes the thing and it's like, this isn't the thing. This is not real life. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is just right. kind of a tool or something for fun, you know, but it's not the, the point in and of itself. But I think that youth and young adults are going to be experiencing that in different ways. And I think that's something that we will definitely have to have to reckon with as a church. And for those of us who are working with youth and young adults, I do think there is, to echo what you said, benefits to being in person. And, and I think there are there are ways that we spend money, time and energy and resources that it's not always useful. But I will say for me personally, I think I am just as or maybe a little bit more interested in some of the work that is not always visible. Mm. So I think sometimes with social media, it makes you feel like everything has to be visible. I think especially as we're talking about yeah. the church and coming back to our roots and being connected, you know, to use an old school example, things like house meetings and being together in person to plan and plot. Like I kind of prefer that right now because I think sometimes with social media as a culture, we think we have to advertise everything. And I think that gets us in trouble. And so I think also, again, reinforcing with youth and young adults, this is a tool, not the thing. And it's not the sole way of creating relationships and relationship building is going to be important. Yeah, thank you. Before we run out of time, 
One of the questions that I want to ask, and it's rolling us back around to men's ministry per se, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of conversation that Alex and I've been dealing with of late about to been put on the line. Is men's ministry still relative, still re- still re- relevant yeah. in our world today? And we've had some pastors who've asked that question. We've had others question, the, you know, our our uh, viability as a uh, as a ministry of DHM. I don't think it's because of the resources we develop. I don't think it's they see us as incompetent. I think they see, I think they just can't get their head around the value of men's, of a gender-based ministry like men's ministry anymore, hmm. uh, which leads to two kind of questions for me. One is, well, another comment. When I began men's ministry many years ago in developing resources, the whole idea was as a mentoring ministry. Rites of passage have always been a significant part of my understanding of, of men's ministry, not to make young young men, boys and young men, clones of the older men, but to be that ritual elder who helps guide men on their on their own mm-hmm. journey and supports and fosters that journey with them, that accompanies mm-hmm. them. And I guess my question is, do you still see relevance there? And you won't hurt our feelings. This is an open conversation. <laughs> right. do, you, do you see relevance there for a mentoring role or a partnering role of, of men in the work that you do going forward? Absolutely. I, I do, <laughs> personally. I think I think mentoring is, is extremely important. I think I have thought, especially during my time in Ferguson, where we kind of had a split cohort in a way kind of based on race and everybody doesn't agree with that i thought it was a good idea based on the conversation i think there are times where certain groups need their own time i think where it might become irrelevant or not as helpful is if you're siloed so if you're just men talking to men all the time it's just men 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 then it's Mm -hmm. it's just you know it's not relevant but the idea of mentorship and and elders like that speaks to me. And I, the org I'm working with right now locally is specifically for Black women. So obviously, I have like I don't mind gender based things because mm-hmm. I think I think it's necessary, at least for me as a Black woman, to have a space with Black women. Now, in my day to day, do all I talk to Black women? Obviously not. But I think we're, we're talking about planning and faith. And what we need collectively, because different people have different needs, like Black women have different needs, specific needs. I think that space is important. And then when we go out, we go out, but we have this space that we need to organize, to plan, to mentor, to pray, to resist. Like, that's our space. And I think in the ways that we talk about, and I know you all do this work, too, about addressing, you know, patriarchy, addressing misogyny, addressing sexism in a society that reinforces that every day to have elders say, no, there's another way. And no, there's another way that we're going to be shaped and formed. And not, not just on the negative tip, but I would say at least as long as that's still existing, <laughs> like disciples, men and mentorship should be existing. And then also on a positive way, just a space for men to gather as well, because I think sometimes it is more likely for women to do that work. And I think it's necessary work that I've seen. I think it's more likely for women to do it than for men to do it. And I think sometimes at least the men that I talk to feel a little bit left out because <laughs> they don't have a space or it's a space of people their age, but they don't have elders. And I think that a intentional space of eldership is incredibly important. And I can't, in this kind of society, I can't think of a time when it wouldn't be important when it's done in a healthy way. Again, in a way that's like connected to other people, other ministries, always growing and always learning. I think that's always going to be relevant. I think the only time it's not relevant is when we all become siloed and don't talk to yeah. each other. But 
as much as we have to fight, like if y'all could be over there working and, you know, men can be over here working and women can be over here working and then we can all come together to, you know, be on the same page. I think that's incredibly important. Is, is there a language that works for that, that helps communicate that better than others? I mean, mentoring or elders, those may be words that nobody resonates with anymore. Is there a language that Alex and I ought to adopt, yeah. uh, you know, that helps communicate the pure, the pure intentionality of what we're trying to do? That is a good question. So I'm thinking a little bit contextually. So contextually, elders speaks to me, you know, <laughs> as a Black woman, like elders actually speaks to me. I think reciprocal mentorship or maybe intergenerational mentorship might be helpful. I will say as a young person, sometimes it feels like people are trying to just deposit into me as if I'm a blank slate and have nothing right. to offer. But you know what we're trying to avoid. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I think, and I don't think you all do that. So I think that language will help of like, what can you, what can the young people teach me? Right. Like I think that type of reciprocal wisdom, maybe wisdom would be a good word to use as well to, to kind of build that. And I think relationship building and if healing is a part of that work, that could be a part of it as well. But I think that maybe will open the door and, and have more access for people to feel like they have entry points. And then if there are young people, you know, that you work with, maybe they have, or young men that you work with would be like, hey, maybe this speaks to me a little bit more, then maybe that can open up the space or, or older men in your group as well. But I think elders reciprocal wisdom or mentorship, I think healing is a great, you know, a great way to kind of describe this space as well. And a space for all of that to happen. Like this is a space for you to just be. This is a space for us to grow together. This is a space for us to, to build together. Those are things that personally speak to me that when I see those words, it draws me like, okay, wholeness. These are also womanist tenets, but wholeness, healing, <laughs> you know, those type of things speak to me because it's it's a communal space. And maybe communal is another word. Maybe community is another word of your intentionality of us coming together, building something together, and then also growing together so that it doesn't feel kind of like one-sided in the language. Because I don't think your work does that, but maybe that can help match the language with the work that you're doing. Yeah, that's ex- that's extremely helpful, uh, Alexis. Thank you so much for that. That, I mean, that just speaks to me too. I'm listening. That that kind of sparked all kinds of neat things. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah, no problem. I s- especially appreciate that uh, the idea of being reciprocal in our in our mentorship. I think I've talked about this before. I won't belabor the point, but I, at the end of uh, 2020, because things were going back to quote unquote normal, some of the my daughter and and our house changed. I didn't have mm-hmm. in early 2020 I had a lot of access to to younger perspectives. At the end of 2020, I didn't. And so I mm-hmm. went out and and intentionally looked for a couple of younger pastors to mentor me where I didn't, yeah, I'd been in ministry longer and I had some experiences and I was able to share out of that in our conversations. But the the intent was to help me be connected to what's going on in seminaries these days. What's, mm-hmm. you know, what are what are the what are my colleagues that are 20 years younger than me talking about? Uh, because I'm not in those circles anymore. Mm-hmm. And that was that was a really it lasted about a year when the job change happened. Those fell apart because of responsibilities. But that was a really formative year for me uh, mm-hmm. because 
because of that reciprocity that was in yeah. those relationships. Yeah, I think that's so good. One of my friends talks about her Gen Z mentor. She just said it in passing one day. And I was like, wow, that's so good. <laughs> like, And I think we probably should have a mentor that's younger, uh, maybe a mentor that's older. But I think our mind, including mine, when I think about mentors, I think about people who are older than me or further along than me. But who are our younger mentors that are mentoring us? And then who are we mentoring? You know, it's our reciprocal. They're mentoring us or mentoring them. Older yeah. people are mentoring, yeah. they're mentoring us. But how do we create that? Because I think that is more of a communal space. And I think you said too, ritual, Greg, I think you said as well. I think that's, I mean, those are words of speaking. Like, I think mm-hmm. ritual is also important. So if there's a uh, a ritual or something that you all do that you can continue to do or or something that you could say to one another to kind of build that community, I do that in the, the Black Women of Faith space that I'm in. We we had a something that we said to one another as a pledge to each other. Um and that is also a way for us to build community as well. So maybe that's another way to build that as a part of the reciprocal mentorship. It, it also speaks to accountability one to another, which is really important. Yes. I think. Yeah. It really does. Well, Alexis, this has been an extraordinary, really wonderful experience for me. I think Alex, too. I'll let him speak for himself. But thank you so much for taking the time. We hope we get you back to do another one of these down the road. So <laughs> Absolutely. You find the time to do that. Yeah. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. And like I said, I, I now got to send you an email and get another book title. From you. So, <laughs> uh, it's a new year and I've got, I realized earlier today, I've got a new book budget. So I need, I need a book budget. <laughs> <laughs> Alexis, again, thank you for your time today yeah. and for all the work that you do just for being a phenomenal person. I, I, it's been great to get to know you. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much for having me. This was such an amazing conversation. I'm glad I got to know you both a little bit more in in a separate space. So this was great. I would love to come back. All right. Thank you. Thank you you all. And thank you for listening to another edition of the Disciples Men podcast. Our special thanks to our good friend, the Reverend Dr. Dean Phelps, for providing the special music of this podcast. You can discover more of Dean's music at deanphelpsmusic.com. And you can learn more about the ministry of Disciples Men on Facebook and through discipleshomemissions.org.